At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a growing network of people who believe the center of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ, and that learning to take love seriously is vital for how we practice discipleship, mission, and leadership. The Gravity Leadership Podcast explores, in practical ways, how to root our lives and our leadership in this love that holds all of us and everything together. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. It's another week. It's another podcast. Another gravity-shaped hole in your heart filled by the dulcet tones of Ben Sternke and Matt Tebby. Hey, everybody. I'm not sure anyone has <coughs> that ever That wasn't dulcet. Let me try it again. No. No one's ever uh, described my voice as dulcet. No, but <laughs> it's true. Warm, I never have. The yeah. warm second alto tones <laughs> of Matt Tebby. Uh... <laughs> All joking aside, uh, it's good to um, be back in your feed. <laughs> it's good to be here uh, and with my friend Ben. We're talking today to Alan Noble, who is um, um, somebody who is talking about living as Christians in a distracted mm-hmm. age, and particularly how our embodied witness, or if you will, how we live in America with mm-hmm. all the American... Uh, Americanness happening around us, yeah. how how we live faithfully and fully as Christians. Yep. Yeah, his uh, his book is. Uh, it, we'll talk a bit about it in the interview, obviously. But um, you know, he he kind of leans on Charles Taylor uh, a bit, talking about what it, what it means to live in a secular age um, and how to uh, how to kind of proclaim the gospel, to speak uh, the truth about who God is. You know, to talk about the Christian story. In a in an age where sort of all of those things are feel up for grabs, we we don't have this like agreed upon 
narrative that we're all kind of referencing and, mm-hmm. and going back to. So, so I think it's a really helpful um, book. I think you'll find it uh, a helpful interview. And it's part of this series we're doing right now on being a Christian in America, um, because that's a big part of it is, um, you know, we, we do kind of live in this post-Christendom milieu. Oh, yeah. Um, and we're learning to... Um, to to speak uh, in ways that disrupt people out of the frames that they're currently living in. Yes. Um, and we're, we're sort of learning real time how to do this, you and I, Matt, in mm-hmm. our church right now. We're preaching a sermon series um, right now. As we're doing this podcast series in our church, we're preaching a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. Um, we're, we're calling it the politics of Jesus, or living the politics of Jesus in a partisan America and, you know, just by wading into those waters, it's kind of caused some interesting um, pushback, uh, disruption, if disruption. you will, disruption, um, yeah. to, to the frames that we normally think of. Um, anyway, one manifestation of that that I thought would be interesting to mention was, um, you know, there, there was some critique. You, you preached a sermon a few weeks ago on Matthew five seventeen through 20 about Jesus fulfilling the law. Mm-hmm. Um, what that means that he fulfills the law and then his call to go beyond to transcend to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees yes um, and basically like ended up kind of talking at the end of the sermon about um, how what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount is critiquing those who leverage God uh, God's name leverage religion uh, into the um, Basically, the exploitation and the, um, uh, sorry, I can't think of the word. It still feels early. I don't know think, if I got enough sleep last night. Think of it. What's the word? Oppression. There it is. The exploitation and the oppression of people. So leveraging God to do that. And, yeah. you know, critiqued some fairly specific, you know, uh, people. Um, critiqued <laughs> some fairly specific talking points, um, specifically on the right. And it's interesting, because sometimes I think the pushback you get is, well... What about, you know, there's this what aboutism or, you know, that kind of a thing. And there's an assumption inside that frame of left versus right that, you know, to critique one side, you also have to critique the other. Um, but anyway, I just, I, I, I'm fascinated with um, that task. It's a difficult task, I think, to try to disrupt the frame itself. Um, and it's, uh, it's hard to do because I think we, we're, so, we're so accustomed to living inside the frame. Yeah of left versus right, instead of allowing Jesus to kind of uh, disrupt our politics, disrupt the way that we think about what it means to be a Christian in public. Yeah. I mean, now so. I want to have a whole conversation with you about how Jesus disrupts the powerful and the powerless differently. Yes. He His, his method or mode of disruption is different mm-hmm. if you have power and if you don't. Mm-hmm. And that's fascinating to me, and I don't. I have just started thinking about it. But if we do this, Ben, we'll never get to Alan Noble. No, we will never get the, the point today is as for Alan. But maybe at the end of this series, um, the, the, we're going to do a recap on Election Day. That's when this series ends, yeah, November third, and maybe we can talk some about that uh, in our series recap. And um, we just want to kind of real time uh, learn with you. So anyway, we'll get to this interview. Um, friends, if you have uh, questions or pushback or um, that kind of a thing, we'd love to answer those uh, maybe during this series. So email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Uh, if you have a question, if you have an insight, if you have an idea, 
um, all of that kind of stuff. We'd love to uh, make this a conversation and interact with you uh, in the midst of this series. Anything else to say, Matt? No, just uh, be kind to yourself today. That's a good word. As you listen to Alan Noble, remember mm-hmm. that uh, it's the kindness of the Lord that will lead to your uh, your mind being renewed in Christ. Yeah. So, so just extend the same kindness to yourself that God and Jesus Christ extends to you. And here's an interview. <laughs> Alan Noble, welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, we're excited to have this conversation. Uh, but uh, before we dive in, maybe just introduce yourself to our audience. Um, who are you? Where do you live? What do you get up to in a, in a day? I am uh, Alan Noble. I'm an associate professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma. So the middle of the state that's in the middle of the country, arguably, at okay. least. And uh, yeah, so I teach I teach literature and composition, and I uh, freelance on the side when I have time. I have not had a whole lot of time recently mm-hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wrote a book a couple of years ago called Disruptive Witness, um, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. I think that's probably the title. And, uh, okay. Yep. Well done. Check. Yeah. Um, and I'm working on another book. Uh, I, I should be writing it right now, but here I am. So but here you are. We're, we're part <laughs> of the problem right now. If it doesn't point. get finished on time, I'm telling my editor. Uh, it was because I was promoting my other book. Well, you can just say, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, yeah. Can just say yeah. you got distracted in a technological age. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't able to re- disrupt the witness at that point. <laughs> You could say that. <laughs> good. What's what's your other yeah. book about, Alan? What's, what's are you taking notes? Let, write write these down, Alan. Yeah. These are good. These are good. Aren't tips. you recording this? I figured. Yeah. I could just oh, okay. Yeah. Then right. You, you, you can listen back through. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the book number two is uh, very tentatively called something like uh, "We Are Not Our Own," mm-hmm. and what I'm doing is taking um, sort of. Uh, t- taking the cr- first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and death, that we are not our own, um, but belong, body and soul, life and death to Christ. And um, trying to make an argument that there are some significant ways in which the modern world is uh, s- s- functionally inhuman. And, and by that, Mm. Um, I mean that it uh, it assumes what I call a false anthropology, a false understanding of who who humans are. And um, if you live in an environment or a habitat that is not actually designed for you, like designed mm. for humans as God designed us, then you're going to have a lot of friction. There's going to be a lot of conflict. Mm. And and I think that that when we look at things like deaths of despair, when we look at um, other forms of addiction, the rise of pornography. Um, uh, it, it, it seems to me that part of what we are witnessing when we see these things are humans reacting to being in, a, in an environment that's, that really was not designed for them. Huh. Wow. It's, so that's like the whole yeah. modern world. The whole modern world is that environment then, in a uh, sense. 
I mean, I, I would say um, I, I wouldn't. I, I don't want to go so far as to say the whole the whole modern world because I, I think there are, there are plenty of things in our society that um, that r- reflect um, who we are as human persons and mm. are good and beautiful and true. Um, sure. But I but I do think that there are a, a lot of structural and institutional uh, parts of our society that uh, yes. habits, practices, values that fundamentally assume that we are our own and we belong to ourselves. And so I'm, so the, the essential argument is that, that, that we, we take that assumption that this is what it fundamentally means to exist as a human being is that you are on your own. You exist for and unto yourself and uh, all the ramifications come you know, from that. And if that's not true, if, if, you know, if, if that's not the case, then we're going to be depressed. We're going to be anxious. We're going to be frustrated because that's not who we are. So maybe we shouldn't be surprised that these two things are happening kind of at the same time. Right. Yeah. Yeah. As uh, I just read a uh, Dallas Willard quote, uh, who he said, reality is what you run into when you're wrong. (laughs) It's almost like that's what your book is saying. Hey, we're running into reality here. This is, this is a, it's a feature, uh, not a bug. That's right. Well, good. Uh, I'm excited for that book. I mean, we could talk more about that one too. Um, we wanted to talk with you about um, Disruptive Witness, though, the other uh, book that you mentioned, um, because we're doing this series on being a Christian in America. What are the pitfalls of that? And also, what is the, what's the potential uh, of that? And I think your book has some uh, interesting things to say about it, specifically as it regards the the nature of um, we're sort of inundated with uh, technology, mm. um, and so we we almost can't. You know, we're we're meeting on a like a, a video call here, even recording this, and it's really difficult to engage in communication, human relationships without using this technology. But I, I I like how your book kind of brings out the the nature of how using the technology shapes and forms us in ways that we're oftentimes not aware of. Mm. I think that's a feature of American. Uh, being a Christian in America that we have to grapple with. Otherwise it's going to shape us in ways that we're unaware of. And we'll just think, well, that's just normal or we won't be, you know, we won't be uh, aware okay. enough of the the formative influence. Um, but I, I wonder if you could maybe start with like why. So it, it's about speaking the truth in a distracted age, but why yeah. the word disruptive? What do you mean by a disruptive witness? Yeah. So when I was, Reading Charles Taylor, who uh, his his work at Secular Age is is the foundation for about half of of, of that book's um, work. Okay. Um, uh, so his work on secularism, and then I was thinking too about what I was witnessing at the time as a uh, graduate student at Baylor. As I was, you know, the roots of this book were many years ago, right? So I'm I'm seeing a lot of students. Who I'm interacting with, and uh, and and also just witnessing how technology was uh, and continues to f- form me, and and I was asking myself, well, you know, you know, what are some of the marks of the of what technology does to us? Uh, how would you describe it? And it does seem to me that it that it creates almost a kind of a, a, a bubble around you that that you sort of turn inward, you're absorbed inward toward your screen, um, toward whatever it is that you're working on. And, um, and so as I was thinking, okay, what would it look like to, to be an effective witness to a society where one of the challenges is that they have, um, high quality, entertaining, um, 
you know, uh, perfectly designed for them content at their fingertips twenty four seven. How do you how do you reach those kinds of people? Because they're going to have you know the gospel in the book. I say, or I think in the book, I say something like it's it's cognitively taxing. It's it's hard. You've got to think about the gospel. You know, the very idea that that we are sinners in need of a savior is not necessarily a pleasant thing. It comes to be a pleasant thing, but at first it can be quite a painful thing. It can be a a difficult process of wrestling with yourself, looking yeah. at yourself in the mirror. So on the technology side, there's this uh, this challenge of, of, of people who are, to use one of Taylor's terms, kind of buffered by uh, busyness, by distraction, by t- uh, 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 diversions. And then, of course, um, Charles Taylor, uh, he talks about secularism as having kind of a similar effect, that, that, it, mm. that it insulates us from he doesn't say this, but but I'm saying he sort of insulates us from the transcendent. It's easier in the contemporary world to push back, or not not even to feel the need to push back against the idea of God. Mm. Um, it, it you can just dismiss it as somebody's lifestyle option. So, to answer your question, that that when I thought about those two uh, movements, trends working together, technology of distraction and secularism. Uh, and I'm saying that they both insulate the modern individual, then it seems to me that one of the tasks for Christians moving forward is to find ways to speak the gospel to people um, that puncture those buffers, that that break Mm. through those buffers that that are being thrown up by cultural conditionings, by technology, and by the rise of secularization. Yeah, so there's a a sense in which you have to you have to take the system as a whole and instead of just make something within that system, like here's a Netflix movie about Jesus, that'll do it. You know what I mean? Or like, here's the new, you know what I mean? Like just create yeah. a piece of content that people are like, Oh, this will be entertaining. I'll watch a story about Jesus. That's not quite enough because you haven't disrupted the system from within which people are thinking about Jesus. Right. Yeah. And I'm thinking about it specifically in terms of, um, you know, the, the individual's experience of it. And so to give okay. an example, um, when I think back to conversations I've had with people that where I became vulnerable and I had to assess my life, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, th- there are certain things that tend to happen in those kinds of moments. Uh, sometimes they can occur um, by interacting with the work of, of, of art, which is kind of what I address at the end of the book. Sometimes reading a good novel or watching a good movie, you come away and you think, I've got to, you know, to quote The Phantom Menace, I've got to go home and rethink my life. You know, you, you, you realize... Uh, <laughs> right, right. Yeah, this there's... changes something. Or I have it, to, yeah. it upsets you, right? Uh, and I point, I talk about uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy's The Road as an example of this. If, oh. you, if you read that, and oh, especially yeah. if you're a father or a parent, you know, oh you gosh. can't go away and be like, well, that was fun. Right. Like it upsets you. It disturbs you. And that's good. Right. And so so that's the kind of disruption. Now, um, that was a novel. So it's still a part of this publishing industry. But but there are certain ways of doing things that Mm. invite people to be vulnerable, to look at themselves in the mirror seriously and to be uncomfortable for a greater good. 
And people yeah. aren't inclined to do that. I mean, uh, I've, I've had students and people say, you know, I don't want to read the road. I started reading it. It's too depressing. You know, it's too hard. I'm like, well, sometimes mm-hmm. you got to do hard things. So. <laughs> yeah, I remember <laughs> the, uh, it sounds like, it sounds like you're a real uh, pushover in the classroom. <laughs> uh, uh, no, um, I, um, I remember just to comment on the road. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. It's one of my favorite novels. The movie is also very good. Um, and I, I went to it thinking the same thing. Like I went to it with a bunch of dads. I went to the road and I was like, guys, we got to go watch this movie. Like we got to go like participate in this experience together. Cause I, I had had a profound experience. I'm thinking about my own, I have a son and I'm thinking about my relationship with him and you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, I wanted us dads to like, talk about Can, like, can I ask you, so had you read, you had a profound experience. So had you read the book? Is that yes. the experience? Okay. Yeah, okay. Were. So you knew the power of this story. So you're like, I yes. want to get us in. Okay. Right, yeah, yeah. So I'd read the book and I was like, Oh, the movie. And I think I'd seen the movie already. And I was like, Oh, the movie is great too. Mm. So we should, we should go see this thing. And uh, I remember being so disappointed because the guy, one of my friends, uh, was not expecting this. He was not expecting the road. I think he was expecting some sort of post-apocalyptic Michael Bay movie. You know, oh. it was going to be a lot of explosions, oh. you know, that kind of thing. And he, he just came out of that thing like, why did you take me to this? <laughs> I, was like, I was like, well, I thought, did, were you not? He was like, that was so depressing. I don't want to see a movie like that ever again. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, okay. Well, anyway. So, How yeah, did, um, yeah. Can I ask about, because this gets to I think, what we're talking <laughs> sure. about here. So what, what happened after that? So you saw the movie. Did you guys go get some food afterward? Did you get yeah. coffee? Did you talk about it? What, what was that like? Yeah. I, you know, I'm trying to remember. It was a while back. Thanks for coming on my podcast, by the way. Yeah, yeah, sure. Anytime, um, <laughs> Alan. This is great. Great to be here. <laughs> no, um, I think I had wanted to. I don't, I don't think there was anything. Well, you know what? We may have gone out for for drinks and stuff afterwards. And I just remember the feeling, I don't remember exactly what happened. I just remember feeling disappointed that some of my friends didn't really have the same experience or didn't seem interested in kind of diving into the depths of how the movie and the story, the story, the book as well, how the story had unsettled me. And I I was hoping that they had wanted to be unsettled or that it would unsettle them and just sort of realizing, Oh, I guess they didn't want to have that conversation at that time. That's interesting. Yeah. So as I've, as I've talked to this book, uh, to this book, about this book, to, to many different people, one of the things that people have asked for is, you know, sometimes is, is steps, right? And, and so I've always had to say, like, I, there's no, this isn't a 12-step program. Like, I, I, uh, you know, what I'm trying to articulate here is going to be radically dependent upon who you're with, right? And so that, it's interesting hearing your experience, right? Because you, maybe you had a couple friends who were willing to dive into that, but the others were reticent and they were uncomfortable and maybe a little mad at you. And so that kind of killed the mood. And so you go yes. to get some drinks and you start talking about basketball scores instead, right? right? And then yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, the mood, people are no longer depressed. Everybody goes home kind of happy. And yeah. uh, as they lie down in bed, they're haunted by the images and by themselves. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. probably what happened. Um, yes. So it's a, uh, you know, this is, this is the brass tact, right? So, you know, it's great for me to write this thing. Well, maybe it's not, but you know, it's one thing for me to write this thing saying, okay, to ways of disrupting your neighbor are inviting them into works of art that, mm. that ask them these difficult questions that maybe make them uncomfortable. But the reality is some people are going to say, no, I, 
why did you ask me over to do this? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I watched, um, tree of life. I watched tree of life after I wrote the book, I had heard whisperings. Like I kind of knew that this movie was going to be like the perfect example of the Mm -hmm. kind of movie that upsets you in a good way. Uh, but I didn't get a chance to watch it until afterward. And then I tell you, man, uh, uh, my wife cried and I, I wanted to repent for taking for granted the goodness of being. And I'd never had that experience before <laughs> where I was like, I'm, never occurred God, to me forgive me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but it does, right? And yeah. so we would have this conversation, my wife and I, because I thought, man, this is perfect. This is it. This is the movie. But I can't ask my uncle to go watch this movie. Like he's not going to sit through it. And um, so, but he would maybe sit through the road, but the road is even too far for some other people. Isn't that interesting? So, so you have to, so, and this is why getting back to what I said earlier about people asking for steps, the, the reality is you have to be discerning and wise. You have to know the people that you're ministering to and you're, you're trying to bond with or connect with because some of those people are not going to be at a place in their lives where they're going to be able to deal with the road. But for me, I'm like, the road is, is, it's not hard to, I mean, it's painful, but it's, you know, it's, no. it's not tree of life. It's, you can get through, it's got a clear plot. It's interesting. It's fascinating. Yep. It's hard to put down. So, um, yeah. So that's interesting. Yeah. The, uh, the road, the road is actually anti-consumptive. And the fact that when I read the road, I read it in one sitting. Mm-hmm. Um, I, did, I did too. And I think we've talked about very that. common. Very I common. couldn't. I, I felt like I couldn't put the book down, or the characters yep. would die. Um, <laughs> and I feel like good art. Good. Did art you put it down at the end? Then is that what happened? Sorry. Oh my gosh! <laughs> <laughs> it's your fault. I'm yeah. still holding it. Yeah, it's my fault. It's my fault. Uh, no, I, I feel like it's anti. It subverts your desire to consume, and so that opens you up to being disrupted because yeah. the book did something to me. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't do anything with that book. Yeah. I didn't like use the book for my entertainment. The book like crawled under my skin. Yeah, and inhabited me, and then wouldn't yeah. go away. I couldn't shake it. And I feel like good good art does that. It grabs <sighs> you and arrests you, which yeah. is um, maybe it's because we give ourselves over to such bad, banal art that we there we lose we lose a consideration and an appreciation for art like that. Mm. I don't know. And uh, no, I think that's absolutely right. And and it it also dulls our senses. Like we be, yeah. we lose the ability to appreciate works that do challenge us, which art has historically always done. Right. So, but it and the interesting thing to me is that we don't need Terrence Malick or Cormac McCarthy in order to pull this off. Uh, the first fifteen minutes of Up will gut you in a way yeah. that makes you think about mortality and marriage and meaning mm-hmm. and purpose. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, you know, you go watch up with some friends and then afterwards you talk about, man, why was that so hard? Mm-hmm. Why was that so hard to watch, but, but so moving? So why, why do I feel, after watching this first 15 minutes of up, why do I feel a sense of, of beauty. Like I love the, that couple's relationship and I'm also broken about it. What, how do, what do I do with that? Right. And then you can kind of move through and have this conversation. So I think I I don't want to let filmmakers, novelists, I don't let anybody off the hook because I think we can make, it's possible to make works that do that. It's just hard.
Hey everyone, it's uh, Ben Sternke here. And uh, sometimes we do these announcements at the beginning of the podcast, but uh, I wanted to accentuate this right in the middle uh, of our podcast today. Uh, Coronatide, as we call it, uh, has hindered and hampered our ability to do um, live in-person workshops. Um, But we're getting back to doing uh, some workshops online. We did a few of these back in May, and we're doing one coming up here in November, November 13th and 14th. Online, we're going to be doing a Church in the Wild workshop. Um, We're really excited about it. It's uh, Church in the Wild workshop is really what what it means to be the body of Christ in post-Christendom. What does it mean to be the church, to practice uh, authentic and winsome Christian witness when we're not in charge anymore? Because the the crumbling of uh, Christendom, it brings up a lot of fears uh, for a lot of people. Uh, It seems like our only options oftentimes are to kind of circle the wagons, defend the faith, and we, we sort of double down on Christendom postures and practices, or we apathetically capitulate to culture around us and whatever's happening, and uh, you know, in a way, we lose our faith. But we actually think there's a different way forward. We actually think that the crumbling of Christendom is an opportunity. We think there is a way to remain faithful to what we've received in our faith and also creatively and winsomely engage with our culture. Uh, we think there is a way to be the church in the wild places of uh, the culture right now. So that's what, we, that's what we talk about at this workshop, Church in the Wild. We're going to explore the paradigms, the postures, and the practices that are necessary to ground ourselves in a non-anxious presence that does remain distinctly Christian while also connecting meaningfully and deeply uh, with the people and the culture around us. So that's what we're going to talk about. It's November 13th and 14th. It's Friday night from 7 to 9 p.m. online, uh, November 13th, and then Saturday morning from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern time uh, on the the 14th, uh, Saturday morning, 2020. Church in the Wild, uh, there's a link in the show notes, but if you go to gravityleadership.com slash church, there's a link to this specific workshop that we're going to be doing online. I hope to see you there. We're really excited uh, about this workshop and uh, hope that you can make it. All right, back to the interview with Alan. So I I meant to ask you this before, just in case people aren't aware, can you talk about what you mean by secularism? Because I think we're we're touching on something here that it makes it really important to like understand what what Charles Taylor means or what you mean when you say secularism. So growing up in the fairly fairly fundamental parts of the church, I always heard the term secular and it was used to refer to the people out there who are, who are lost sort of like pagan or heathens or something, or the secular media was coming to get us. It was this antagonistic force. And what Taylor does is, uh, um, he uh, he will offers a different definition. He's not denying that there are aspects of, of of secularism that can be seen as antagonistic towards faith, but he's saying he's sort of asking different set of questions. So, mm-hmm. um, and he starts off his long work, a secular age, by asking the question: What changed from let's say the twelve hundreds to you know uh, you know the two thousands in the way people experience faith? Why mm-hmm. is it? that if I lived in England in 1200, uh, I would be born a Christian, raised a Christian, die a Christian. 
And uh, well, I was born in 1981 and uh, born into a, a family that very quickly became Christian. So I was essentially born a Christian. I was raised a Christian and Lord willing, I will die a Christian. So there's a parallel here. But Taylor says the experience of faith between those yeah. two individuals will be different. What is that difference? And he says for the medieval person and for the ancient person, the difference is they would never uh, atheism, not believing, would never be a live possibility. Right. But for the contemporary person, and this is how he understands secularism, for the contemporary person, even if you're always a member of a church, you're always faithful, you're always going to be hyper aware that you have other options available to you. So your faith is always in tension, in opposition to other possibilities. So I've always known I could be, I could be a Jehovah Witness, I could be Catholic, I could be I'm Presbyterian, but I could be Baptist. I could just get rid of the whole everything, you know, Judeo Christian faith entirely. I could become Muslim. I could become Hindu. I could become Buddhist. I could just stop asking life questions entirely and get a good career and have fun. I mean. And the thing yeah. is, is, I've known people that sort of fit into almost all of those categories, right? And mm -hmm. I've seen them, and I've seen them living fairly pleasant lives. So it's a live possibility in my mind. So Taylor says, when you, when you, when you understand that difference over the past 500 plus years, what you see is, or what you can think is that, that secularism is the state in which... Um, Christianity is just one among many, many possible, viable, reasonable belief systems. Uh, not, not necessarily reasonable for many people. but and, and then he says, increasingly one of the uh, less plausible. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so um, you can be Christian. Sure, people, you know, we live in a pluralist society. Sure, if you want. But increasingly it's, it's seen as, 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 as less viable. And so for him, for Taylor, secularism is it's in the church. It's everywhere. We're all thinking right. about Christianity as a lifestyle option. Yes. And when you frame it that, that, so secularism is the, yeah. So it's one of the impacts of it is that my faith feels to me similar to like the kind of jeans I like to wear. It's my personal or, brand or the way that I, the way that I dress or the way that I trim my, you know, the way I cut my hair. It feels like one of those things to me. My faith yeah. can feel that way to me less of a strong identity that I'm never going to get rid of and more of a lifestyle option. Yes. Yep. Okay. Yep. And we do think in terms of branding a lot, right? I mean, just, yes, we do. it's just part of just how living in a consumer society with branding is just in the forefront of our minds. How am I presenting myself? How am I branding myself? And that yeah. includes faith for many people. Yeah. So you, you talk about this a bit um, when you talk about how to, and I'd love to talk a bit about, so so far, we've talked about okay that the the buffered self, the distracted sure. age, like all of these things serve to sort of um, insulate us from asking questions that would put us in touch with more transcendent things, in, including God. You know, mm -hmm. and so um, one of the key things that you said, I think, that's helpful in terms of distinguishing um, how to engage this is you you said that there. Um, I wrote this down. There are ways of doing things. So it's not whether or not there's a Jesus movie on Netflix. It's not about the content and just getting the content into the medium, but it's the yeah. way that the content, like what does the content do? 
it's the way of doing things that matters quite a bit. Um, so anyway, all that to say, uh, you you have a, a section in your book where you talk a bit about how churches are oftentimes part of the problem in the way that they focus on marketing and branding. So oh. I wanted to chat with you about this a little bit because I, you know, I'm a pastor, <clears throat> yeah. and you know, I feel this tension because, you know, it feels faithful to communicate, hey, yeah. we're a church, we have a name. Here's this our is where logo. we are. This yeah. is where mm-hmm. we are, and we want to be easily identifiable, yeah. and so we've got a logo, right? We've got a name. Yep. And then, you know, we think pretty carefully about how our website looks and, yep. like, what's the first thing people see? And we want to represent our community well to people so that they feel like, oh, this might... So anyway, so I, I feel a lot of those impulses, which I think are decent impulses, mm-hmm. but how do I then... Like, what's the difference between that and a an uh, inordinate focus on marketing and branding. Like, how, how would you parse that, or how would you help us think through that? So, as I've been, so I think my first piece of advice that I that I give to pastors is um, to begin asking these questions. I, I I think if if you come to things like um, advertisements, um, marketing, uh, mm-hmm. the use of social media, uh, cognizant that there is a that that your idea of excellence when it comes to advertising, when it comes to social media, your idea of excellence is probably heavily tainted by um, uh, corporate uh, use of those things, right? Uh, If you come to it with that understanding, then you're very likely to be able to catch yourself and make some discerning choices about, okay, um, um, you know, this, this logo... Uh, might look a lot more interesting, but it really does not convey anything about us as a church, except that we are a cool place that that captures a sort of contemporary aesthetic, right? Mm. Uh, so I can think of a. Um, I'm not going to name any names, but you know, there's a there, there's a you know a, 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 I can think of a church that that has. Uh, branding for their kids ministry and like the font and like everything like it looks like a. A YouTube channel uh, right. font, right? Like you could imagine, you know, subscribe, and they probably have a YouTube channel, frankly, for their kids' probably. ministry, yeah. right? And and um, so our default is always going to be to adopt technology and adopt practices that we see in the marketplace around us, because that's where we see, uh, typically, we see excellence pursued in a technical sense, right? Uh, and if we can just slow down and ask the questions that it sounds like you're already asking. Um, then you can make those decisions for your context because um, I, I think local context matters as you're making these judgment calls. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So the the I mean we'll get back to this then the the awareness the awareness of the shaping influence like the the awareness of the water I'm swimming in at least oh. beginning to talk about that will safeguard tons of the mistakes you could make in terms of branding your church. If you're just asking the questions, you're, you're on pretty good ground. I think, I think so, because I think for uh, the, the most dangerous thing is to not believe that there's an option, right? Like th- th- right. Th- and that's for that. a lot of people. Yeah. We have to, I was talking to a, to be competitive in the marketplace or whatever. We've got to. Yeah. And I've heard, you know, people in ministry express that, you know, I would like to pull back on this, but I'm, you know, the mood in our church is we've got to have this kind of excellence. So we've got to do this. Well, 
Okay. Yeah. Uh, as long as you cannot acknowledge that you have the freedom to say no, then um, then you're you're trapped. You're caught up yeah. in this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think that's helpful. Um, what uh, what would you say the, the the kind of the three overlapping as I. Uh, read your book. I, I was thinking of it in terms of three overlapping circles um, of of response to this, um, and so one of them is um, like, how do we represent our faith well? Huh. How do we how do we speak about uh, the faith uh, well? Number two is how do we engage in dialogue huh. with uh, people around us well? Sort of a, you know ev- to use an old fashioned word, evangelism. You know, like uh-huh. how do we proclaim good news in context? Uh-huh. And then the third thing that's is how do we organize worship? And mm. how, how do we worship together? So this is less the branding and marketing question and more the, like, what happens when we go to church? Yeah. Uh, what happens in church? And so I was, I was interested in the fact that those are overlapping concerns for you. Um, and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about how you see those things relating to each other um, and why that matters and why they're connected. I don't know if a lot of pastors intuit that the way that we worship, how we organize ourselves— our engagement in, in society and how we sort of represent the faith. Like, I don't know that a lot of people have a idea that those things are connected and how they're connected. Yeah. So as, um, as I'm writing, as I was writing this book, I got to the second half of the book and I had to begin the the most difficult thing, which is at trying to offer some way forward. It's very easy to diagnose problems to say pointing figures is really easy, but, and, and, uh, it was overwhelming. In fact, I, mm. I, I wrote a second half of the book and scrapped it and spent a summer rewriting it because um, what, I, what I found was, and this gets to your question, what I found was that um, when you're thinking about, okay, how do you resist or how do you push back? How do you disrupt technology of distraction and secularism? How do you do this? Well, both of those elements, technology and secularism, are completely embedded in our society. In other words, I can't just point to it. I can't just say, well, what this practically means is change the way you do screen time in your family. Yeah. Um, and, and that will fix your problem, right? Or, or uh, don't do church online or something, you know, before the pandemic or, you know, something like this, right? <laughs> that, that's not gonna, <laughs> that's, you know, there's, there's not a, a discrete area in someone's life where they can just fix things. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I'm thinking, okay, how do I approach this in a, in a more holistic way? And so I did think, you know, you said in, in uh, overlapping circles, I thought in terms of almost concentric circles, right, where, where you, I think you have to begin with the individual decisions that we make. Are we living lives where we recognize the goodness, uh, uh, the, the way God has blessed us, the fact that he continues to pro- provide and preserve us? Uh, is that is that part of our daily experience of being alive? Because if not, we're probably being subtly affected by secularization and, and or distracted by technology. Um, but that has an interesting effect because if if you live in such a way that your uh, daily life acknowledges that you depend on God for your breath, then that is going to be a witness to the world. Okay, and so that sort of feeds into this this public this public mm-hmm. square um, as well. But I do think that um, I, what I didn't want to do is just say, "Okay, go fix yourself up," which is questionable. 
thing to advocate <laughs> for it at best sure. anyway. Um, sure. But, you know, go fix yourself up. And then when you walk around, everyone's going to be like, whoa, look at you. I want to be like you. I mean, sometimes, right. you know, the spirit works in that way, but sometimes it doesn't. And, mm. and so that's why I have a, a different section where I'm saying, okay, here's how we uh, more intentionally go out and um, make sure that we uh, are inviting people. I think we do have to ask people to put themselves in situations where they are introspective, where they are mm -hmm. contemplative, because mm -hmm. they're not going to do it. Uh, most people are not going to do it uh, on their own, except maybe in cases of tragedy or, or where they're really just shaken up. Mm -hmm. So, um, but then, you know, I'm thinking, okay, so, so, so great. It, it, we have this personal and then there's, you know, that feeds into this larger public witness but boy, again, just reflecting on my own experiences in church, part of the, maybe the place I most powerfully experienced secularization in the church was during church services, Yes, right? And so I'm thinking, okay, it's great. You know, I get my neighbor to watch uh, the road, right? We have this conversation about, you know, what does it mean to live? Uh, why live in a world full of suffering? And he's convinced I get him to come to Sunday service and he comes and it feels like uh, in the book, I talk about it, something like a Ted talk plus a concert, you know, and uh, yeah. very slick production, very high quality, excellence, technical excellence. Maybe he's impressed. Maybe he likes the community, but he walks away thinking there's nothing disruptive here, right? There, there, there's nothing that gets me to my core. Cormac McCarthy did that better than that church service did. So yes. yes. So we need, we need churches that kind of make people uncomfortable, uh, mm -hmm. not in, you know, not for the sake of making them uncomfortable, but insofar as the churches are unapologetically saying, for example, in the Lord's Supper, that we are literally communing with God, that, that Christ does something special through those elements. That's, you know, it's not just, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, it happening in my head. It's not just happening right. in my head, right? Because that's right. that buffered self. It's right. actually spiritually happening in my head, in my body, in the world with God. And, and that's the trick, Alan. I think uh, trick. I'm using that colloquially. I mean, that's that's the thing. We either make comfortable Christians more comfortable with mm -hmm. just sort of like we're going to take the we're going to take the least offensive secular artifacts and produce mm. some spiritual product to consume, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Or, or we try to disrupt and disorient using sub-Christian means. Mm. So, so like we we ramp up the guilt, or we ramp up the fear, or we ramp mm. up the shame. We use the tools of the enemy to try to bring people to the doors of heaven. Yeah. And and one of the thing about Cormac McCarthy, he's not a Christian, but but the, but he's not guilting us into taking our life more seriously and appreciating life. Mm -hmm. He's capturing us up in a drama that makes yeah. that self-evident. Yeah. Um, and so there's, I think there's a lack of prophetic imagination almost to do what you're mm. saying we need to do in the church. At least I feel that. I feel like we yeah. vacillate between just hammering people with the tools of hell or uh, just distracting people with the cotton candy that smells like heaven uh, rather than drawing people into this disorienting, you know, rather than telling a story of a good Samaritan and leaving things mm -hmm. hanging and people mm -hmm. are just, their jaws are on the floor. Yeah. 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 I think, I, you know, I do think, I don't know, I'd have to think through this more. I, I, I do think that, um, and I, I mentioned in the, in the book, one, you know, one of the elements of 
liturgy that 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 I participate in in a Presbyterian church is that um, you know is uh, uh, the law, right? And so you know there is a um, there is a disruptive, you know, the, the very idea that there could be some law outside of me that applies to me and to so when I do that, we when we do our corporate confession, right? And everybody in the church is confessing, you know, uh, you know, their sin. Um, mm-hmm. There's, uh, I, I, you know, it's not shame, but but it is an acknowledgement, of, I think, of, of biblical grief, right? Of, of of recognizing, okay, this is this is real, right? Like like sin mm-hmm. is 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 real. It's tangible. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. in me. It's in them, and it's something we get to repent of, right? So I think. I'm not disagreeing with you, but I guess I'm saying, you know, there, there, are, there are also ways that, you know, if we don't use the tools of the enemy, but we rightly understand what God has given us, um, even things like getting people to recognize their sin and even calling out specific sins done in proper context, I think can be a, a, a way of reminding people, oh, this isn't just in my head. It's not just me living my own truth. Um, yes. And that's you know, yeah. yeah. I guess yeah. I guess there's like uh, there's Matthew twenty three and there's Luke fifteen, and in in both in both genres or in in both um, narratives, Jesus is naming sin, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and I think uh, to to me like there are Matthew twenty three moments, and you know we're Anglicans, yeah. so we you know we're we're all about sin, uh, yeah. and naming it and confessing it week to week. Yeah. But I feel like what I sense we lack is a way of um, allowing the reality of some. I, I don't I don't know how to say this. Like there's such an understated sometimes when Jesus leaves people with their need, he's yeah. he's not connecting all the dots. Yeah. Ooh. You know, it's not heavy handed. Yeah. Uh, there's like, yeah. This, yeah. it's like you have to deal with this, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Go ahead and throw a first stone though. Just the mm-hmm. one with, without sin. Yeah. You know, and there's just this massive drop of everybody yeah. feeling the weight of their own guilt without mm-hmm. a heavy handed, you're guilty. It's just, I don't know how to describe yeah. it. No, well, I think that's true. I think it comes back to. To me, it comes back to this different way of doing things, that Jesus' way of doing things. I think I, I feel what you're talking about, Matt, in terms of the fear, guilt, and shame that gets loaded up. I think a lot of times that feels coercive to me, like somebody is trying to get me, like it matters to them. Something's at stake for them in uh, me making what they think is the right choice. Whereas I see this freedom in Jesus, who's who can, he can speak truth, you know, yeah. and he can speak very hard truth, but he's not anxiously trying to get the Pharisees to, to, to do something. He's just saying, this is what is true. You have to reckon with it. He's placing the responsibility where it belongs. And I think that might be the difference. And, the, and what we lack sometimes in the church is the ability to sort of non-anxiously proclaim something and let people be a little bit uncomfortable with it. Let people be angry with us, maybe, if they need to be, um, you know, or, or let people be comforted by it for a while. You know what I mean? Like whatever, whatever happens, sort of you, you let it happen there. And I think that is a, it is a lack, I think in a lot of church leadership that I've seen. Sometimes that might, that might require an invitation to, 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 to dwell 
with those thoughts, right? I mean, yeah. and yeah. Um, because I, I, I think, um, you know, things that make us uncomfortable, sometimes we just flee from them, right? Yeah. So, so let's m maybe invite people to, uh, maybe, yeah, leave people with these thoughts, um, mm -hmm. but also invite them to, um, to dwell on them, not to just yeah. dismiss them and be like, oh, okay, well, that's done. We're moving on. Yeah. And yeah. I think even in, in church services, there are spaces to do this, right? I mean, leaving sure. space after, you know, uh, certain prayers or just giving people blank space, I think, where they're stuck with right. themselves, even for a few seconds. I mean, it, it weighs. It, <laughs> it feels does. like an eternity. Uh, mm. uh, yes. And that's valuable. Yes. Yeah. That that can be some of the most disruptive. That can be some, oftentimes the the only minute of silence in anybody's week is if you take a minute to do it in a church service. Yeah. Only costs you a minute. It does a lot of work. So, um, can uh, we're we're going a little bit longer than we normally do, but I want to ask you one more question, Alan. Yeah. If it's okay, you are very active on social media. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have? I think this has been a question that's difficult for a lot of uh, Christian leaders to sort out. What should I do on social media? You know, I think there's like, you know what I mean? Like some, some, I think there's some schools of thought that are like, be as like milk toast as you can, like don't offend anybody, you know, that kind of a thing. There's yeah. other thought schools of thought that are like, just say everything you want to, anything you want to, like, don't, you know, that kind of thing. And I, I don't know. I've just, I've, I don't know where to, I don't know that I have this, but I wonder if you have something like this, like some sort of philosophy of engagement on social media, because it is a, it's an aspect of the buffered self. We're not in a room talking, you right. know, there's a, there's a website that we post things on and it's, it's yeah. a for-profit website funded by advertising hmm. yep. and you know, that's the medium and, but we are, you know, there's real people uh, on the other side of this. There's also a bunch of bots, you know, probably from Russia trying to disrupt us. You know, like all this stuff. I don't know if you, in yeah. that crazy world, if you have a philosophy of how you engage these things, if you have a thoughts about, you know, is there a thought out kind of philosophy for you? So it's kind of evolved as I've uh, been a you know part, you know, from MySpace to, you know, as I've kind of right, moved right through. Um, and and I think so much of it depends on your context. So okay. I'll tell you, for me, one of my concerns is um, what my students see of me. And uh, so in the classroom, I am very intentionally apolitical. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I, well, uh, we talk about literature because that's a, it's a literature class, right? Or okay. composition because yeah. it's a composition. I'm not making any comments about any president or any. You know, it's just, it's just. Yeah. Not, if you hear a kid screaming, he's fine. He's probably just <laughs> fell down and got hurt. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, uh, uh, but, you know, so that's that's not my place. You know, I've had professors who would just get into it in the class, and it, it, I hated it. I hated it so mm -hmm. much. I was like, mm -hmm. this is you're clearly just stop. So, but on the other hand, I do think I do want young Christians and other Christians to see at least a model of what it looks like to be a citizen in the modern world. And uh, I'm not saying I, I've got, I, I do it right. I certainly don't do it right all the time, but um, I want to, um, you know, particularly I'm, I'm, I'm fairly what used to be called conservative politically. Uh, I don't, I don't know if that's safe to say anymore because of certain tanks, <laughs> but, um, who knows but, what that uh, means anymore? I know it. I really, I don't, 
But I want I want my students to know, like, okay, you can be pro-life and say the current administration is not, you know, I don't support that, right? I, yeah, yeah. I, I need them to see that. So for me, there's okay. this, okay, I'm talking to a wider audience, and if it benefits them, cool. If not, that's whatever. But I also have my students, and they're following yeah. me, and and um, I want... I want them to see that. I want them to see that laid out. So, so that's part of it for me. Another part of it is, um, um, you know, Frank. So I'm 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 an introvert, sort of. I don't. I'm not even going to try to explain it psychologically. Uh, I, I'll just say it this way: It is good for me to uh, be around other people, and particularly to to do stuff that's silly, to like make jokes. And um, mm. when I'm grading, when I'm reading and prepping for class, when I'm writing books, I mean, often when I'm watching, you know, kids for hours and hours, I don't get that. Right? I, mm. I just don't have that kind of interaction. And frankly, it's yeah. it's good for me to hop on Twitter for ten minutes, make a pun, and make other people happy. And like, it's just it's good for me. And if we were in yeah. a room together, I would do it there. But we're not. And yeah. uh, that's benefit. So that's like a totally different thing. It's totally yeah. unrelated. Right. right. Um, and another, you know, another part of it has been, you know, unf you know, if you want to write, uh, you kind of need to have with that terrible word, a platform, like you've got right. to right. do that. So that's a part of it. And then, um, you know, and then as you know, I've gained more quote unquote followers, uh, you know, I've also thought about, you know, sometimes, you know, what I decide to say is determined by what I think, um, will be beneficial to the people I'm friends with on Facebook or who are following me on Twitter. I mean, yeah. are there things yeah. that I can challenge them with? Now, yeah. I don't think many pastors can can have the kind of voice that I have because they don't have tenure and they don't have. I mean, it's just a different dynamic, sure. yeah, and yeah. I think that's fine. Like, I don't think pastors should feel obligated to do certain you know things on social media, but mm -hmm. in certain contexts, you can. I so, so I think there's a lot of freedom. Uh, and I think we just have to be self-aware and discerning and especially open to reproach by friends. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'll just say, Alan, for my sake, two things. One, uh, I've never seen somebody in person who matches their visage of their Twitter picture like you do. Uh, so one for one. Uh, and two... Uh, that thing is not airbrushed at all. Not no, airbrushed yeah, at all, man. That's right. No, that's right. No, no, no filter. Uh, number two is I think that I, I've experienced your Twitter feed very much in line with your book. Mm -hmm. I see you speaking. I don't see you haranguing what um, gay Muslim people from China are doing, you know, mm -hmm. and like getting all cranked up about that. Like I see yeah. you speaking to people who would be at OBU, who would be Presbyterian, who'd be living in the South, who would have voted for Ronald Reagan. And I see you speaking directly to how to disrupt what ails them, you know, their pathologies right. and antipathies. And we need more of that. Uh, so I just say amen to, I think mm. you're doing uh, at least Thanks. a, at least a B plus job. So in my book, <laughs> that's pretty good. You know, pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I no, see you speaking great. to that and it's good. Yeah. Yeah. I try. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that's super helpful, Alan. Thanks for spending some time with us. Um, and delightful. Yes. How we'll yeah. put a link to the book in the show notes and uh, blessings on writing this new one. Uh, I'm, I'm super interested in that, by the way. Um, 
I, how, how can people reach out if they want to reach out and further the conversation or ask a question? How can people reach you best? Uh, yeah. So I think it's the Alan Noble at Twitter and, um, you can always email me at alan.noble at okbu.edu. Um, okay. I'm not necessarily going to respond, uh, cause we all get too many emails since the pandemic, especially, yeah. but, uh, <laughs> Um, but people can't email you. Just don't you expect, send me don't expect a, yeah. I, You know, I hate the world that we're in, but it's, yeah. yeah. I, especially because I got this book that's six months late. So, uh, <laughs> right. You got some stuff to get, bit, to get it's busy. It's hanging on. over my head. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. but yeah, it's been wonderful. Thank you guys. Yeah. Thanks so much, Alan. Thank Blessings. you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Our show is produced by Ben Sternke, Matt Tebby, and Ben Hardman. Aaron Sternke does our mixing and mastering. You can check out his work at aaronsternke.com. If you find our podcast helpful, share it with your friends in person and on social media. And don't forget to rate and review us online as well as subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You can join our Gravity community for free at gravityleadership.com join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com join. And hey, we'd love to hear from you. Ask a question, make a comment, send us an idea, a recommendation, recipe, whatever. You can email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. Catch you next time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com podcast. That's Indeed.com podcast. Terms and conditions apply.